Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Howdy and welcome along to episode 79 of the Howie Games Part A. Now this is actually the last episode of Series 6. I'm lucky enough to be spending most of the summer travelling around the country with the fine people at Fox Cricket talking about cricket, which I can't wait for, but it means a short break for the show. Don't worry though, we'll be back just after Christmas to send you on your holiday road trips. Already got a few episodes in the can for Series 7. I can't wait for you to hear them. By the way, last week the show achieved its 25 millionth download. For everyone who has ever listened to an episode, thank you so much for driving the show's success. We never really expected to reach 100,000, probably not even 1,000. So 25 million, thank you to you all. Between series, please come along to the upcoming Howie Games live shows featuring world champion surfer Joel Parkinson. You can hear Parko's amazing story of resilience in Sydney on the evening of November 26 and Newcastle the following night, November 27. You can get your tickets now, bring your whole crew, www.howiegameslive.com.au. One more time, it's www.howiegameslive.com.au. Jump on the website, click away, off you go. The Gold Coast and Geelong tickets coming up in 2020 will come online soon. So come and say good day, meet Parko. Mystery, what is to be? So much more than meets the eye. Listen to me, time is your key. You will find out by and by. Alrighty, episode 79's guest is a jockey by the name of Hugh Bowman. In 2017, Hugh became the first Aussie to be named the number one jockey in the world, a time when he was in the midst of Winx mania. Winx, if you've been on the moon, being the record-breaking mare that many feel is the best horse this country has ever seen. 25 Group 1 wins, 33 consecutive race victories, more than $26 million in prize money. That's good coin. But more than that, the combination of Winx, Hugh and legendary trainer Chris Waller transcended the sport in a way to become a phenomenon that Australians fell in love with. Here she comes and the valley roars. Winks on the outside moves up into the straight at the 200 metres. It's Winks in front by a leak. Ben Battle's going with her. Winks three corners, Ben Battle. Winks is staving off Ben Battle. Come at the hour, come at the legend. Greatness, Winks has done it. Wow. Four Cox plates, if you don't mind. The nation was swept up in the fairy tale story of Winx. As the run of winds grew and grew and grew, she had the country on edge every time she raced. Heaven forbid this horse was beaten. No one wanted to see the streak broken. And that is the pressure, that type of pressure, that a bloke called Hugh from Dunny Do had to deal with each and every time he rode her. That is some serious pressure. You can do it if you try, try, try. If you try, try, try. This episode was actually recorded in the middle of the year when Hugh was having a well-deserved break. Thanks to the great man, James Henderson, for facilitating it and introducing me to Hugh. With the Cox Plate about to be run once again, if you've never been, get yourself to the Valley. It is one of the great sporting events. It's a beauty. You'll love it. This is Hugh's story from his first pony called Thumbelina to dreams of a racing career, to mountains of hard work, to pressure that is hard to fathom, to a place in Australian sporting history. Enjoy the remarkable ride of Hugh Bowman. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be revealed 
King Selassie I Come on children, try with me We want to reach Mount Zion Huey Bowman, great to see you. Welcome to the Howie Games. How are you going? Howie, thank you. It's an honour to be here. Oh, I don't Very know well, about thank you. I don't Very know about well. an honour, but um, gee whiz, you must be, um, before we get too far into it, you must be enjoy sitting back. I think you dropped your kids off at school this morning and just having your life back as opposed to probably Australia owning it for the last four or five years, You Yeah, look, it's something that developed the, um, the whole Winx mania thing, so it's not... But the last six or eight weeks I've haven't ridden, as you know. And yeah, it's been really good, just stripping it all back. You know, and, you know, wink, even winks aside. You know, being a jockey, the constant management of weight and trying to make weight on a daily basis uh, is something that I guess is stressful when you mm. when you sit back and think about it. But uh, but when you when you're doing that, or when you're riding, or when I'm riding, or any jockey for that matter, you. You're living a lifestyle, and it's not so much, you know, people often ask, oh, you know, what what do you eat and, you know, what don't you eat and all that, but it's not about dieting. It's a, it's about living a lifestyle that um, that uh, you're just constantly watching your weight. And So what, what, what do you weigh? When you typically ride, what do you weigh? Uh, when I'm 56. 56. So I like to get the races 56 kilos, um, maybe just under. And, and and if you if you stopped riding tomorrow and just sort of generally started eating, I'm sure you'd eat healthy anyway. What do you reckon you'd weigh? Uh, well, I'm walking. I haven't ridden for six weeks, as I said. I'm yep. walking around about sixty-one kilos at the moment. Okay, and that's pretty comfortable. But if I didn't ride ever again, yeah, uh, I'm sure I'd push up to sort of mid to high sixties and be pretty comfortable at that. Uh, I wouldn't be. You know, I'm not a 75 kilo person trying to be yep. 55 kilos, but I'm certainly, you know, 10 to 12 kilos under what I'd what I'd effectively call my natural body weight, and I walk around about 58 kilos even when I'm riding. Uh, 58, 58 and a half. I drop two kilos every race morning that I ride, and I would suggest that that's uh, pretty standard for a lot of jockeys mm-hmm. uh, dropping that sort of weight on race morning and. Uh, yeah, going through, you know, you're literally going through the races dehydrated effectively and, but you get used to it, you know, and it's, I mean, for me, I guess, you know, getting back to winks, um, you know, people often ask, how did I manage all the, you know, uh, everything that came with her, but, you know, I was simply going through my routine when I rode her as I would any other race day, and I think that routine helped me to just keep things uh, in perspective. And um, you know, I think it had a a lot to do with m- my management of my emotions and, and the structure and everything that came with her. But uh, you know, the weight as a jockey is the is the most important part. Or is it, it is is to it me a, anyway? Is it mental strength to be able to continually live that? Structured, strict lifestyle. Like, uh, how, how do you deal with it? You must make up some more. Like, if if you never rode again, Huey, and I said to you, right, what's the one thing that you really? What's, what are you going to hoe into this morning? What's the one food that's like on your mind? That you think you'd love to have that? Um, like you're an ice cream man, you're a cake yeah. man, apple pie. Well, what is it? If you ask in the morning, I'm yeah. having bacon and eggs. Aren't right, right. <laughs> but yeah, but it's a funny thing. But look, as I said, having not ridden for. A, a while. Mm. I'm not craving food okay. because I've been eating normally. Um, 
I'm not a big eater, obviously, and you know because I'm not starving myself or 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 dehydrating myself and constantly, um, you know, going through that structure of losing weight, making weight. Uh, you know, I'm not training, so I'm not hungry. So I haven't, you know, I'm not a big eater. Um, I think most of us probably eat more than we need to. Mm. I think one, one one good meal a day would do most people. But again, it comes back with your physical work. So, you know, if you're out on the farm working a 12-hour day, um, one meal's not going to cut it, is no. it? But, you know, I'm not doing that. I'm And I'm not training. I'm not doing much at all. So, you know, I'm having one good meal a day. That's enough. And, you know, I'm picking... Um, throughout the rest of the day, but when I'm riding, uh, you know, you're constantly um, starving yourself to a degree. Uh, so then you do crave food, and uh, when I'm in that, sometimes you might crave a bit of red meat. Oh, I eat a lot of fish. I love a mud crab. <laughs> right. Um, you know, some nice, you know, nice um, Chinese seafood. Hard to beat. But <laughs> now we're starting to get into yeah. it. <laughs> but look. You know, you, you crave what you can't have. You know, and I think that's not being a jockey or a sportsman. That's yeah. that's being a person. You know, well, the grass is always greener, isn't it? So the dehydration one—that's what really fascinates me. I didn't know we'd be talking about this, but I reckon about four years ago, someone said to me, "You should drink a lot more water. Just generally drink a lot more water." And they said, "Try and drink two liters as soon as you get up in the morning." And I tried it, Hugh, and. At the start, your body can't retain it. Like you need to have a wee every five minutes. Your mm. bladder's bursting. But I run a little bit, not very successfully. But the immediate impact it had on me, increasing my level of hydration, it was so positive for me. So how negative is it? Do you reckon not being hydrated? Um. Well, I think it it it's very hard to explain. Yeah. But. You know, no matter how much weight you lose, the lighter you are, the better you feel on the horse. Okay. Um, which is a bit of a contradiction because, you know, if you lose too much, so I say I lose two kilos every race day, which is standard. That's comfortable for me. But if I if I have to lose two and a half or just over that, then that really affects me. And, and I know that and I've learnt that over, you know, the – 22 years I've been riding, but when I was starting off as a 17-year-old and I was riding 50 kilos, I mean, like I said, I don't ride under 56 much anymore. Mm. Um, But, you know, back then I was riding 50, 51, and I had to be riding those weights to get opportunities. And, you know, I I really obviously wasn't quite as developed physically as I am now, but I was just as big as I am. You know, I was no, I was about my, the height I am. I'm about 170 centimetres. And I would have been about that height when I started riding. So I was really pushing my body to the limits as a youngster. And I've got no doubt, you know, I see the younger guys doing it now. And they have to do it for opportunity. Mm. So I think um, the other side of it is you learn to manage it and some guys do and some guys don't. And as you said before, and quite rightly, it must take a lot of mental strength. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, the the ones that can cope with it are the ones that make it and the ones that don't, huh. that can't cope with it, um, you know, that they, they go on into, uh, you know, quite often other areas of the industry, which is fantastic. But, you know, it's all over wanted to do, be a jockey. And I think 
that discipline that I had early in my career and continue to have now has got you know a lot to do with the success that I've had because it's a constant grind and it does get you down. You know, I find every August without fail, I say, well, I'm just about had enough. You know, I've been doing that last ten or twelve years. Yeah, because you're on, off the back of the winter. You got short days. It's cold, um, and you just, you know, it's mentally exhausting. So why for the last ten years? You, what's brought you back to it? What what thing hooks you every time, Huey? Well. Winks. Right. <laughs> That's a pretty good four, answer. For the last four years. But, yeah. But, you know, once you get to September, the good races come around and, you know, you, the the days start to stretch a bit, the little bit of warmth in the sun and all of a sudden you're in the spring carnival. And away you go. And, and you're away and then ride through the winter. And, I mean, I've travelled a lot the last few years, um, time in Japan, which is – you know, that's taken its toll as well, to be honest, but it's, you know, I guess it's all about opportunity and making opportunities, and that's my reason for going over there. But How's it, your Japanese? Uh, well, it's better than my Chinese. <laughs> Come on, give me something. <laughs> give me something in Japanese. Um, konnichiwa. Konnichiwa, <laughs> you son. Hey. So, 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 so. Okay, that's all. I reckon I did two years of Japanese at school. I'm not sure I've got much more than that. You mentioned you always wanted to be a jockey, but um, this goes back well in, in your family history. You're one of those Australian families that have been on the land. That, uh, can you tell me a little bit about your Australian history? I really enjoyed reading about it. Actually, before we talk about reading about it, I just want to, normally with my guests, first thing I do, the very first place you go is Wikipedia. And from there, articles, if there's a book, any television interviews to get an idea about the person. There is about 19 pages on Winks. On Hugh Bowman, <laughs> Wikipedia, Hugh Bowman is an Australian jockey known for riding champion mare Winks. That's it, Hugh. That's it. That's all we get. <laughs> well, That's all we get. Hence the reason you wanted to chat to me, <laughs> yeah, find out a bit more. Well, that that's right? exactly right. <laughs> so your, your, your family history started uh, on a farm a long time ago in Australia. Yeah, well, my family actually came over on the first fleet of free settlers. Okay. Um, wow. In the late 1800s, early 18, late 1800s. Yep. So um, they settled in the Hawkesbury area, Western Sydney, and uh, at Windsor, and then they moved from there up to where Coolmore is currently, mm-hmm. uh, the Coolmore Stud in the Hunter Valley, and from there they moved to where our family farm is now, in, in at, which is Marothery, Dunnydoo, and... Yeah, it's actually the oldest house west of the mountains that's been occupied by the same family uh, throughout. So, so that's west of the Blue west Mountains? Of, west of the Blue Mountains. Right. Yep. Wow. So, so it's not the oldest house, but it'd be over 150 years old, <laughs> the house, well, the uh, initial part of the house. It's been extended over the years. But uh, So, yeah, there is a lot of family history on the on in rural Australia and... Yeah, so I grew up on the farm with my sister and my parents uh, continue to run uh, the farm. My father's an avid horseman. I think he gets more out of um, training his dogs and horses than he does coming to <laughs> Sydney to watch me ride, to be honest. But um, but that's where it all started for me. So There's a family history riding horses I grew up jockeys. riding. And my father was an amateur jockey, my, as was my uncle and my grandfather. Uh, my my great uncle, who I'm named after, James Hugh Bowman, he, he he was killed in the Second World War. Obviously, 
I, I didn't know him, but he also rode uh, as an amateur jockey. And do you know anything about his story? Uh, I, I don't know a lot about it, but he was um, along with. Uh, some close relatives was uh, bo- killed on a boat. Um, huh. Yeah, they were bombed in the yeah from the Japanese, uh, which is that was one of the ironic things going back to Japan yeah. and riding there. And I, I'll be honest, I, I really love the Japanese culture, and they're really kind, soft, gentle people. And you think of the history of our country and theirs, and you know how terrible it was, and you know, you couldn't even begin to understand the, the the suffering of, you know, both the Japanese and Australians. But to go back there now and ha- having lived in the culture and seen it, it's really quite interesting. And uh, winning the Japan Cup on Chevelle Grand in 2017 was probably one of the proudest moments I've had in the saddle. At the moment, it's Kittasan Black. Here comes Hugh Bowman on Cheval Grand going to Kittasan Black. It's Kittasan Black. Cheval Grand goes up on the outside and late Ray Oro. It's Cheval Grand. Cheval Grand goes on and wins the Japan Cup. You know, I, I did think at times because I was on my own. Mm-hmm. Obviously, my wife, Christine, and two girls didn't come over there with me. So it was quite isolating because of the language barrier. And yeah, I, I did think a lot about you know, um, the history of the two countries and it's not brought up over there, of course. But, no. Um, we walk, I walked the Kokoda track a uh, couple, two years ago with um, Corey Brown, Kathy O'Hara, Stephen Baster, Chris Smith, uh, Richard Callender did well. Um, yeah, so there was, um, th- that was really interesting. I suppose I probably learnt more doing that yep. than... You know, well, it opened my eyes to the history of, you know, um, war. And it's not something I've ever researched, but, yeah, just having done that and then going to Japan, yeah, it was really interesting. Well, you know, I thought a lot about it when I was over Mm, there. No doubt. So, Hugh, when when you're in Japan, for example, and we'll get back to where you started in a minute. That's my problem. I asked too many questions. (laughs) So you win the Japan Cup. Okay. You get off the horse. So in Australia... um, you get uh, interviewed 15 times as soon as you've won, obviously all in English. You've just won the biggest race in Japan, their equivalent of the Melbourne Cup. You jump off the horse. What happens then with the media? Well, I have an interpreter. Right. So it all goes through an interpreter. It, yes, it does. Huh. Uh, but it's, yeah, it's a little bit difficult, obviously. But, yeah. Um, but the fans over there, I mean, they just love their racing. Do they? And the thing is, there's so many people there. I mean, that's a... You know, that was the most, that was the first thing that really hit. You know, you go into a train state, there's just millions and millions of people. And you, to be perfectly honest, you, you wonder how they all fit. <laughs> but but, it, but it's very orderly. They're very polite. Um, as I said before, they're, they're very kind. And But discipline, the discipline of the Japanese is something that I think Australians could take a leaf out of their book. And yeah, that's something that. You know, I, I admired or do admire mm. for, from the Japanese people that that their their discipline, and I think um, Australia as a nation could um, mm. could could lift their standards in that area a little bit. What do they call you over there? Uh, Hughson. Hughson. Or Bowman. Bowman. <laughs> <laughs> so, mate, we'll get back. We'll go from Japan back back to the farm. So, 
When did you first jump on a horse? Can you remember first riding oh, a horse? I, I rode horses before I can remember. Did you? So, I mean, there's pictures of me as, I suppose, an 18-month-year-old with my father on a horse, um, but I certainly would have been at the age of two, two to three riding on my own, being led, obviously. Um, but, yeah, I mean... Yeah, I can't answer it because I I was riding before I can remember. Oh, and what was it about? From when you can remember, obviously there's something about a sport that grabs someone. What what was it? Wasn't it a sport for you then? Was it just fun riding a horse, or what was it about riding a horse? Well, it was just part of life. Okay, that's what it was. You know, it's not something that I ever really thought about until I got to about eight years old when I wanted a motorbike, and my father said, "Well, you won't be having a motorbike." Before you're ten years old, uh, a lot of my mates had motorbikes, but they, their parents weren't as into horses as my father was, and you know that, you know that, that's a, as I said earlier, my my man just loves horses. He loves, he loves developing young horses. He loves developing young dogs. He loves developing young kids. You know, and I see so many kids from the district have, you know, been tutored or helped um, by dad, and that's just something that he's gifted at and gets a lot of pleasure out of and you know once he gets his horses up and going we uh, in, inevitably moves them on sells them and a lot of the a lot of the ponies being ridden by kids even um, today around the district have been have come from dad and been developed you know through either bred by him or or bought and then broken in and you know, he, he's not as active now as he was, you know, even five years ago. But um, certainly that's where, that's what he gets most pleasure out of in life. Obviously, um, he runs a – or my mother and father run, run mainly cattle on the farm. A little bit of sheep, not so much. But, yeah, Dad, you know, in, in the city we go out to dinner and um, go to the movies and – Take the kids to lunch or kids sport, but in the dad, dad's pleasure is getting on his horse and riding around the paddock for the afternoon. And, but he you said know, to checking you, on the stock. He said, "Do you know motorbike?" Not till I was ten. Uh, I got a motorbike when I was ten, and by the time I was eleven, I never wanted to. I'd say, I, yeah, eleven or twelve. I never wanted to see another horse. I just had enough of riding altogether. And he said, "Well, look." Uh, when you're 15, you can make your own choices, but until then, you'll be riding and going to pony club and huh? doing shows. But um, but riding was very natural to me, and I, you know, I was good at it. You know, even in the early days, I was champion boy rider at all the shows and all the pony clubs, and um, you know, it was very natural to me. It's not something I had to work at. Um, and from an early age, I was just, I guess, born to ride, really, and it's not something I've ever really discussed. But um, there's no doubt I do have a, a gift when it comes to riding horses, and, you know, it's not something I've, as I said, I have to work hard on my weight. I have to mm. work hard on the politics. I have to, you know, I've had to learn to be a jockey because that's not something that was natural to me. But riding horses uh, was... Always very natural and comfortable for me. What was your first horse? My first horse was a horse called Thumbelina. Thumbelina? Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, she was a, oh, I can't think what breed of horse she was, but she was a pony, obviously. 
my sister and I then got two ponies, uh, Welsh mountain ponies, uh, Noddy and Scampy. <laughs> so they were a bit smaller than Thumbelina. So we sort of I went from Thumbelina to to Noddy. Mm. My sister had Scampy, and then uh, went back to Thumbelina, and then I. When I was about eight or nine years old, I got a horse called Simon. He was about 15, two hands. Um, and that's probably where my develop my, my skills and development of being a horseman um, really went to a new level because he was a high standard horse and he was a young, younger horse and, you know, I guess he, I was ready for him and, you know, he had a lot of learning to do and, you know, we learnt together and I think, um, that's where things really I guess I was old enough to understand that I was um, that, that I was a decent rider mm. and I had the horse and the and the support to to develop as well from through through my family and um, yeah I guess that, that were, they were the years from say eight years old to 12 when I went to boarding school that things um, re- really stepped up you mentioned there that um you love the motorbike, and at one stage you thought about giving away the horses. I've been very fortunate, Hugh, to work on a lot of different sports. Um, I've worked on horse racing a little bit, not with any great uh, expertise. I once said to Greg Childs about Sunline when the horse was going for its third cox plate, what is it about him that makes him so good? And he said, mate, the horse is a sheep, so I'm no expert in the area of <laughs> horse riding, Phil. Uh, uh, Hugh... But for all the sports I've seen, MotoGP and being a jockey, I reckon, look to be the two most dangerous. Mm. How do you deal with the... Like, you've obviously come off horses before. It's a risky caper, being a jockey. Well, the way I try to explain it, it's a bit like a car accident. So when you hop in the car to drive down the road, you don't expect to have a car crash, do you? No. Um, And... You know, I'm very lucky. I have never had a serious car accident, but we all know someone who has. And I guess that's, you know, you don't expect to fall off a horse when you get on one or or an accident. But when an accident does happen, that's what it's like. And, you know, I've heard people say, oh, you've got to roll this way or got to roll that way. I can assure you when, when a horse is going down, you, that's when the reality hits of just how fast you're going. Do you get any warning? Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. And, um, you know, I guess I've had times where I have had warning and haven't, especially in my younger years, and you sort of don't understand the warnings. But as you get older, you you know, and you experience, like anything, experience can't be bought. The only way to get experience is by doing. Mm. And uh, it's like every other aspect of the industry. Um, you know, if you ride a horse that... You know, has a heart heart failure. Um, when you get older and you felt a couple do it, then you feel it. Uh, so it's hard to explain, and it's not something that I think. If it's something you're thought thinking about every day you went to the races, then you'd have to consider maybe other options because it is dangerous. And but I suppose with the amount of horses that are running around each year. Um, you know, there's not really many accidents. No, but when but when there is a fall, you've got a higher possibility that it's going to be severe. And I think that's the point. It's like shark attacks for surfers very rarely happens, but when it does, it's a horrible thing. Yeah, well, I suppose we 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 all get a bit 
scared of sharks when yeah. we swim, swim in the ocean, don't we? But I mean, but if you see the, a, if you see a jockey come off a horse, it's always that type of thing you have to look away from because both for the horse and the jockey. Yeah, well, the, the, as I said, you, you you forget how fast you're going until you're halfway to the ground. Yeah, and. Last year I had a horse duck out from underneath me and just left me mid-air. Shocking, to be truthful. Three from the right. The yep. horse shies away now. Huey goes down and... OK, now now we've been told that he he's off to hospital. Yes. Um, probably with concussion. Um, yes. Maybe a tooth or two. We don't know mm. about that for sure. But no big breaks and that's no. good news. I think it was... The- it happened so fast. Inevitably I was knocked unconscious and... Um, Is there time to process it when it's happening? Do you think, right, I'm in trouble here or just bang, you're gone? Well, I'm, I'm not going to say what I was thinking on live radio or on, on the podcast, but, yeah, I mean, the horse was – I was above the horse, so it sort of pig-rooted, so mm. it, it unbalanced me and then it shifted sideways and I was literally – it would be like going along on the back of a ute at about – 55 or 60 k's and just jumping off, <laughs> you know. It's not going to end you, well. If, you, if you're standing there on the back of the you, you'd quite comfortably do that. But if you thought about jumping off, you'd start to um, understand how quick you're going. But So you get knocked unconscious? I was on that occasion um, and I was unconscious for two and a half to three minutes, I think. So... Yeah, it was a pretty, probably the worst fall I've had, and I, you know, I'm very, I've been very lucky in that department. I have had uh, several race falls and other falls at track work and other areas, but I've been very lucky with injury. And yeah, that was that was a decent knock to the head. Uh, so, what do your family? You know, your wife. You've got a beautiful young family. Your mum and dad. You've had an enormous amount of sets. The obvious question would be, Huey, do you ever think, all right? this is the way for me to go forward or is it just, no, this is what I do, it doesn't very often happen and I'm pushing on? Well, it's something as you get older, you know, and as you just pointed out, I've got a young family. I've got uh, Christine and I have Bambi who was five and a half years old and Paige who just turned four. Outstanding. So, yeah, there's, you know, I've got um, a lot to look forward to Mm. and, you know, I, I think a lot about Ty England who had a nasty fall in or actually it was quite a simple fall but the accident the injuries that he sustained um you know he, he'll never walk again and i guess it's a reality when when you see an accident like that happen but at the end of the day when you see how simple the actual incident was mm. i mean i'm not going to give up riding horses if i stop being a jockey i'm going to go and ride horses doing something else and the accident that happened to him could happen to 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 the old man ch- chasing a, a, a beast down the you know down the paddock i mean it was just you know, horse stumbles and trips over and you go head first in the ground and that's what happened to ty um obviously sustaining you know, se- severe injuries from yeah. that. But then you see other falls where there's a six-horse pile-up and, you know, everyone just gets up and walks away, horses and riders. So there's no rules to it and it's a reality of what we do. It is the most dangerous occupation on land in the world uh, and the the risks are real and it's a reality, but... Um, that's what I do, and 
I guess going back to when I'm when I started off as a youngster, I had a bit of a I had a horse slip over when I was galloping it one day in in Dunedoo and oh my mother was not impressed and <laughs> she said what are you gonna you know how can you let him do this it's so dangerous and to to my father and so dad, dad what did dad reckon all right well let's let's pack a matchbox up with cotton wool and put him in that and just you know. <laughs> <laughs> slot him under the kitchen table for the rest of you know. So I mean, right. there, there's two ways of looking at it. Yeah. But uh, you know, but uh, when I was young, I was you know like anyone else. Yet that you don't consider the the reality of the risks. You're bulletproof. Well, you you feel you know it's just not the consequences become more real when you get older, and obviously when you get a family. But with that comes respect, not only for yourself but other riders, which I think is a good thing. Uh, and you know, there's, I think, the the severity on riders um, with careless riding over the twenty years that I've been riding has increased a lot. And you know, with the introduction of things like plastic rails, uh, I just think the industry is much more aware of. Uh, no, not not so much, not not more aware, but there's much better protocols in place now for safety, and I think that's not only in racing but society. More of Huey in a moment. As I said at the start, we are having a spell after this episode and returning with Series 7 just after Christmas. If you're listening to this episode, fair chance you don't mind the horses. If you haven't listened to Episode 10 way, way back in Series 1, it features legendary jockey and epic storyteller Jimmy Cassidy. I reckon you should check it out. I did. That, that, that was a good story. Did I had you to, truly do that? I Jim? truly did, yeah. I, 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 Underbelly style. Underbelly style. Rolled in cash. At 20, Pumper was rolling in money. <laughs> I got I got the grey nurses, the $100 bills, <laughs> the big cha- changed into 20s. <laughs> so and me, and me mate said, what are you doing that for? I said, I'll show you. So we got back to the hotel room. Pump took all his gear off, got the Melbourne Cup whip, tipped all the money on the bed, <laughs> and for one hour I was literally just rolling in cash. <laughs> That's Jimmy Cassidy, Episode 10, Series 1. Alrighty, back to Huey. So, as you said, Huey, you always wanted to be a jockey, so you become an apprentice jockey. We always hear the term apprentice jockey, and for those of us that don't follow the sport in detail, like what, what's the life of an apprentice jockey. What do you do? You work. Do you? <laughs> well, if you want to be good, you work. Right. Um, yeah, I was sort of, it's interesting. Well, when you look back at the youngsters now, uh, you think, oh, geez, if, you know, they've got it easy these days, <laughs> you know, and I think, again, that, that's not a racing thing, that's society. You just think younger people don't have to work as hard as you did, but all successful people work. All people that do well put in the extra bit, and I started off in Bathurst. I left boarding. I, I went to boarding school in Sydney, and it, when I was about sixteen, I decided I really wanted to be a jockey. So my parents weren't too keen on me leaving school, but if I wanted to pursue a riding career, it was obvious that I had to leave school early to to do that. Otherwise, I I would have probably got too big. And the time would have passed. So that's the one thing about being a jockey. You do start when you're young. Um, the apprenticeship starts, or you can start when you're 15. 
I was nearly 17 when I started. So I went out to Bathurst and started with Leanne Aspros, who was married. She was a trainer. She was married to champion country rider Billy Aspros, who was, well, he's a legend of country racing in New South Wales. And uh, I lived with them for the first six months. And he had a big picture of Taradu, who won the George Main Stakes in the early 90s. And I used to sit there just staring at that photo thinking... One day, I just want to ride a Group 1 winner. And that was my dream. I just... And I'm, I'm living that dream now, of course. But in those days, it seemed so far away. And I was up at 5.30 every morning. I'd muck out five boxes, ride... So clean out the stables. Cl- clean out the stables. So there was 20 stables um, in the in the barn. Um we, there was four of us who'd muck five boxes out each. I, so I did my five, then I'd ride however many I needed to work, usually probably anywhere from four to eight, uh, depending on the morning. And then uh, tidy up after you know after the horses are work, then you you know you make sure their waters cream, cream their legs, uh, tidy their feet. Make sure they've got rugs if it's winter in Bathurst because bloody mm. cold in the <laughs> sure summer, is. stinking hot. But, you know, just basic, you know, general care for the horses and their welfare. And then usually in those days we finished stable work in the morning anywhere from 10 to 11.30, again, depending on um, how many staff were there in the morning. But, yeah, say 11 o'clock, go and have a couple of hours rest and then... I, I used to go back to the stables early and sit on a chaff bag and get the get the whip out. And although we've got huge restrictions on how much we can use the the whip these days, which is fine, um, you know, back in those days it was uh, important. Well, it still is an important uh, part of being a jockey, being able to um, use it effectively. So you'd sit on the chaff bag and practice. I would for about half an hour to. An hour, really, every afternoon before afternoon stables. So I'd, I'd just go there on my own and sit there, or you know, put a jockey saddle on it and just practice. Yeah, every every afternoon huh. before afternoon stables, and yeah, the afternoon stables consisted of pretty much everything you did in the morning, except you didn't ride the horses. You'd take them for a walk, you know, probably ten or fifteen minutes. At, at the very least, each. And uh, that was, yeah, just, again, general welfare for the horses being. And, you know, the horses are athletes, and that's not something I thought about then, but certainly as I've got older, uh, you know, and understood more about life. You know, horses, that's what, race horses are athletes, and that's, so are jockeys. And it took me a long time to see myself as an athlete. Yeah. And once I started to do that, because I'm so interested in sport, once I started to consider myself as an elite athlete, uh, I think my I, I raise a bar for myself, which is something that I always will continue to try and do. And it's put me in good stead so far. My word it has. So what's your first race? What's the first time you jumped on a, a horse in a race? Uh, well, I was actually still at boarding school. Okay. So I started. I, I I did some trials in the school holidays. As I said, my father was very, uh, you know, proactive in trying to introduce me to any everything and anything he could 
on horses. So as soon as I was old enough to ride a racehorse, uh, that's exactly what we did in the school holidays, did some barrier trials, and I rode my first experience in a race was at Martha Guy. <laughs> no, beg your pardon, Mundjeri Picnics. So Mundjeri's <laughs> between Dubbo and Narrow. It's west of Dubbo. Bit south of Narromine, central New South Wales, and so it's not Flemington. It's a long way from Flemington, <laughs> and that was my first introduction to riding a racehorse in, you, in a race. Do you remember the horse's name or not? Uh, I rode two horse. The first race, I had two rides on the day. Uh, one was Slats, who was a horse that Dad had prepared specifically so that he could win. So he was in a maiden. Uh, as it turned out, I missed the start on him. And in your ra- in your first race, uh, that was my second race. The first race, I think, was a mare called School Kid. Yeah, so had that first race go. Uh, pretty fast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was like a bit of a flash of lightning, really. But the running, I remember the running rail didn't start till the two hundred and fifty meter mark. And so there was just sort of pegs, a bit like a you know on a trot on a mm-hmm. harness racing track, around the back of the course. And I remember being sort of pushed almost inside the pegs, and I felt like I was going to go up the inside of the running rail at one point. So that was probably the most vivid memory of I, ha- I have of my my first race ride. And your first winner? My first winner was the horse I just mentioned, uh, Slats, and he. In, on this first day, uh, it wasn't or no? that day. No, right. that, so I think I think it was actually my last ride as a picnic jockey, and it was in the Wellington Picnic Cup, and I think it was my twenty or twenty first race ride uh, as an amateur, and after that, uh, I went. Yeah, I went back to school, did a term, and I I left school to be a yeah to start my apprenticeship. Do you remember the win and how it made you feel? I remember it. I remember it vividly. I, I don't. It's interesting that you are. I don't think about it much, but yes, I do remember it. I don't remember how I felt. I guess I was pretty excited. But it's a funny thing. Uh, winning races, you sometimes you take it for granted. Um, sometimes you don't. And I guess at that stage, it it probably didn't really. I guess it was a dream come true to wasn't so much with the winning, just being a jockey <laughs> was the dream for me. Um, and I guess looking back on it, yeah, I probably didn't get the satisfaction that one might think, but I certainly did when I was a professional jockey because it took me quite a while. Again, took me, I, I don't know how many professional rides I had before my first winner, but... Um, what was your first professional win? It was a horse called Scottish Emma at Golgong which is the closest racetrack to where my parents' farm is. And, yeah, that was Dad's horse. So, yeah, my, Dad was very good to me, when I was, even though I wasn't obviously not apprenticed to him. But I think out of my first ten rides, probably eight were his horses. <laughs> it's a nice way to get yeah. into it. Yeah, well, it was just great to have that support, you know. And I guess uh, Scottish Emma, who... Was my first win. I think I rode her for two or three placings uh, in the lead up to that win. And Dad said he often got asked, you know, well, why do you put him on? That horse is ready to win, you know. But like I said, he loves developing his young horses, his young dogs. He's, you know, 
if he's got cattle in the yards, he used to show them when he was younger. He hasn't done that since uh, my sister and I have been about. But, um, you know, he said, well, if I don't, he said, you know, if I don't put him on and give him a chance, who is going to? And uh, I, I guess that's the way he thought. And eventually the winner came and uh, away we went. You mentioned about 20 minutes ago, Hugh, that you hadn't really talked about it before, but you're always naturally good at riding a horse, but you had to learn to be a jockey. Um, now, you've been voted the number one jockey in the world. How's that, by the way? Yeah, it's very humbling, isn't it? But, I mean, let's be honest, um, you know, you're only as good as the horse you're riding, you yeah. know, so no matter how... If you're the best MotoGP rider in the world, you know, you talked about MotoGP, you know, if you... If you're on the wrong bike, you can't win. Yep. So, you know, and that's obviously the best jockeys attract the best horses, and that's just a, a I guess, you know, it's just the the way the web works. Um, but you know, I've been very fortunate to have ridden some of the best horses, not only just in Australia but around the world the last five years. Mm. Uh, but that's something that didn't just happen. That's something that happened through the sacrifices made by myself and by my my wife. Going overseas, spending time away, and and developing um, relationships uh, with people, you know, specifically more in Hong Kong than anywhere else, but also Japan over the last couple of years. Uh, my wife Christine is from Ireland, and uh, I'll talk more about that in a little while. But mm. my first introduction to going overseas was to go over and visit Christine, working for Dermot World, and on the Curra in Ireland and that's I was 20 23 when I did that and I'd never heard of the English Derby when I went over there and all of a sudden I'm watching Frankie Dettori and Kieran Fallon and Johnny Murta and Mick <laughs> Canaan and it just opened my eyes to you know how big the world was and how much opportunity there was um, and I guess that's where the bug for me to be you know, I always wanted to be good at what, I, what I'm doing. I, I never envisaged that I'd be the best jockey in the world or considered the best jockey in the world, but I always wanted to be the best I could be. And that's what I say to people that, you know, that although I'm only as good as the horse that I'm riding, uh, I always try and be the best that I can be uh, on and off the horse. And, you know, I guess that's put me in good stead. But you've got to create opportunities for opportunities to come and you can't make things happen but if you give yourself the chance to let them happen uh, doors do open and if you're there to walk through it when it does uh, it's amazing what can ha- amazing what can happen oh, it's a great point Hugh because Lewis Hamilton is not going to get the ride in the Mercedes and everyone says it's the best car in the um, field but he's not going to get that opportunity unless he's worked to the point to get there is exactly what you're talking about but back to my question you said you had to learn to be a good jockey, and I reckon you could answer this for three hours with your wealth of experience, but don't do that. What's the key to being a good or a great or a wonderful or the world's best jockey? Uh, discipline and commitment. You know, I, I think, you know, to to everything, not just, you know, for me, it's the weight, and that's where I struggle. I'm... I'm, I'm quite a bit bigger than most jockeys but because I've got to have the discipline and the commitment to my weight then that filters through to other areas and I guess 
you know, in a nutshell, you you can't cut corners, you know, um, and if you do, you'll get found out. And I was, you know, only had dinner with Nash Rawilla, close friend, last night. I haven't seen him for quite a while. He's been living in Melbourne, but he was here in Sydney. And, yeah, we had a good chat. And I remember a few years ago, we were, I was about 20 wins ahead in the premiership. And I thought, well, I'll take a holiday. I'll go to Ireland, visit Christine's family, and we'll have a couple of weeks over there. I'll have a month, come back. You know, I'll come back. I'll ride another five winners. So that gives me, say, a 25 buffer zone. Well, Nash rode 36 or 7 winners in the month and won the premiership. And that was a huge lesson for me. And I mean, it wasn't – I was disappointed at the time, but it was a great lesson. You know, if, you, if, if you're competing at the highest level and you think you can rest on your laurels, you will get swallowed up. And, yeah, it was um, – as disappointing it was at the time, it was a great lesson for me. And, um, you know, I think it's made me not, not only – you know, not only a better rider, but a, a better person. And, you know, it's made me understand that the level I'm riding at, I think, because I've been at it for so long, sometimes you could easily take it for granted that you're riding at a level that's much higher than the average, let's say. And that's something that I've come accustomed to because of the horses that I'm riding, the support that I get. And, and I guess the... The how do I explain it? The 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 want to be the best I can be, um, you know, and keep, and and I want to keep improving all the time, and uh, I guess that drive and that commitment has got to, got me to where I am, amongst other things. Let's talk pre winks. Let's talk your career pre winks. You said Hugh that you always wanted to win a Group One race. Which would have been the Dooman Cup, two thousand four. Yep, there's a little bit more about you on Wikipedia. Not much though. <laughs> so, in a minute, describe your career as a jockey before you jumped on Winks. Oh, there's a lot of it. Yeah. Um, you know, she's sort of a dream horse, obviously. But I had three goals. So getting back to Bathurst, I had three goals when I went to the stables in Bathurst. I wanted to be the leading apprentice in the Central West. Yep. My first full year of riding. So I started in April 1997. And so obviously the season started in August. So I had a couple of months to get my toe in the water. So that first full season, my goal was to be the leading apprentice in the Central West. I thought, well, if I can do that, I might get the opportunity to go to Sydney and be, you know, I'd love to be the leading apprentice in Sydney at some stage throughout my career, throughout my apprenticeship. And my third goal was to ride a Group 1 winner. That was more of a dream than a goal. <laughs> and so at that stage, everyone that saw me said that I'll be too big to be a jockey. So I'm thinking I've got a limited um, time span in uh, as a professional rider. Being told that, did that spur you or did it make you question yourself? Uh, it spurred me. And so, yeah, the more I, I'm i a little bit like my youngest daughter, the more I'm told I can't do something, the more I want to do it. But <laughs> uh, she, so that was my drive, you know, and I thought, well, if I can finish my apprenticeship, when I, you know, get to 21 four years, if I can get to there and still have my weight under control, surely I can ride till I'm 30. And once I'm 30, you know, then I can 
pack up and go back to the farm and live happily ever after. So, <laughs> that's the way I was thinking as an 18-year-old. Um, <laughs> things have taken a turn for the better. Have they say. ever? Uh, but, yeah, so I was able to achieve that first goal. I was the leading apprentice in the area, that first full season of riding. I then spent another season in the Central West and I, was, I wasn't I was leading rider, but I was third to Tracy Bartley and Greg Ryan. Billy, who I mentioned before, who I used to work so closely with, with and was very influential to me, and I think he taught me a lot about being a jockey and living a jockey's lifestyle. Um so that was, you know, I was very fortunate to have an influence like him in those early years uh, and also obviously working with Leanne who was a leading trainer at the time in the Central West. So Billy had an accident at track work about within six months of me being there and it was a second significant head injury for Billy and ended his career. But with with his career ending it, opened opportunity in the stable for someone to ride all the horses and obviously I was still very young and immature and inexperienced and whenever a lot of the better rides went to Greg Ryan and Tracy Bartley but as I matured and got more experience uh, Leanne then started to give me more of the opportunities and you know I think that was the beginning of uh, where I am now, you know, having those opportunities and given that support at that early age by, by Leanne um, certainly helped me be among the leading riders in the area and then I came to Sydney after two years in Bathurst and uh, joined Ron Quinton. I'd ridden over 100 winners in the country, came to Sydney, I had a full claim in the provincials and the city and, yeah, things went from strength to strength and... I was a leading apprentice, so I achieved the second of my three goals. Uh, my first season riding in Sydney, I think I rode 67 or 8 winners and wow. was yeah won, won the apprentice's title pretty comfortably. So that would have been 2000, the year 2000, yeah. And then you mentioned it was more a, a dream than an aim to, to win a Group 1 race? Yes, it was. Um, you know, I guess that dream started to become more of a reality once I was in Sydney because I had my first ride in a group one in the Doncaster which I outside of the Melbourne Cup was the one race that I wanted to win um, and yeah so I think in that year the year 2000 I rode a horse called Market Price for the late Peter Hayes and uh, we oh, we finished Midfield in, I think overs Doncaster. <laughs> so it's interesting thinking back on it now. It seems so long ago, but that's yeah, that was my introduction to Group One racing as a jockey, and uh, I had to wait a while before I had my first winner. As you said, two thousand and four, I rode Defire to victory in the Doom Cup for the late Guy Walter, who who was another huge mentor of mine uh, in those early years. And what did it mean to you? meant the world it really did I was just at that stage of my life it was just probably the proudest moment of my life at, at that stage and um, I was just so pleased uh, to have the opportunity but just to do it you know to to win at the highest level um, 
you know, all all my childhood dreams uh, had been fulfilled, and I, you know, I, I say that literally. I just couldn't believe it, and the next day I got on the plane and went to Ireland to spend time with with Christine, and uh, and that's when my eyes were opened up to to you know how how big the world was and how much opportunity there was out there. But how Christine came to come to Australia was with she used to look after a horse called Vinnie Rowe, huh? who, who was a champion stayer in Ireland for four years running. So he came out for the Melbourne Cup. Obviously, he was the leading contender of the stable, and so when they got on the plane, Christine was told that she wouldn't be uh, looking after Vinnie Rose, she'd be looking after Media Puzzle, and she did all the work on Media Puzzle leading up to him winning that famous race with Damien Oliver aboard in 2002. I didn't know Christine then, obviously, but um, yeah, that was her introduction to Australia, and she went back with the horses and took a year off and came back travelling and I met her the following year. So uh, our relationship stems back to, you know, 2003. At a racetrack or where'd you meet? Uh, I met at, at, at a racetrack. She, <laughs> she was working for Ron Quinton. So he was my boss, as I mentioned. I, I was out of my apprenticeship, obviously, by this stage, uh, but I was still riding work there two or three days a week and uh, that's that's when we met. And you were just a smooth young man that swept her off her feet? Is that how it went, Hugh? I was pretty smooth, yeah, <laughs> when I think about it. <laughs> I was smoother then than I am now. <laughs> Alrighty, that is the end of part A, but don't worry, Winx Mania is about to really get rolling in part B, so see you there, legends. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try If we try, try, try Listener